Welcome to the Health Tech Pigeon podcast, bringing you the top health tech news stories and analysis every single week. I'm Belle, and today we have an all-women panel in the Pigeon Coop. I'm joined by Jess and Indy from the Somex team. Jess, would you begin by introducing yourself for our listeners? Hi, Belle. Uh, delighted to be making my Pigeon debut today um, as the second Jess in the Somex team. Yep, I'm a huge Pigeon fan and also a bit of a health tech nerd. I spend a very large amount of my time talking to people who are doing very cool things in the health tech space in London and further afield. And the rest of my time, I am trying to stay on top of all the news and developments in the sector. Amazing. So looking forward to chatting to you today. And Indy, can you give our listeners a little intro? Hi, yes, thank you, Belle. And Jess, you very much stole the description I was also going to use of health tech nerd there. So yeah, my background's in medical science and I've worked for about eight months on a clinical gastro ward. So have an inside from the from the front line, as they say as well. Um, massively interested in all things health tech. I also help run the health tech podcast, which is so much fun. And very much excited to have my first podcast experience today. Well, we are super excited to have you both. Um, I think it's going to be a really great episode. So on to story number one. All right. So Google's Verily secures $1 billion to bolster armory. Tech giants are ramping up for a red hot health tech arms race. Who will come out on top? Jess, what are your thoughts on this? Yeah, so uh, this is a story from Fortune um, about a life sciences unit, Verily, and they have raised a very impressive $1 billion. Um, So not an amount to be sniffed out there. Um, And they raised that from Alphabet, their parent company. And Alphabet, most people will know, are also the Google parent company. Verily were actually formerly known as Google Life Sciences. And I found out that they were a division of what the article describes as a semi-secret research and development group um, at the company called Google X. Um, to me, that all feels very spy movie and exciting. But uh, they split off in 2015 to be an independent substory. And now they've raised this very, very impressive $1 billion. They're what they say, they're going to make healthcare more individualized. Um, they're going to be investing in data platforms, research and technology, um, and also to uh, carry out some strategic partnerships and potential acquisitions. So um, to me, this looks like Verily are really um, positioning themselves as serious players in the health tech arena, um, serious players with very deep pockets who are ready to take on their rivals like Amazon, Microsoft and Apple. Um, so yeah, one to watch. I imagine we'll be talking about Verily again on Pigeon very soon. It's such an interesting story. I mean, they have their first CFO has been brought over from Tesla um, and he was the first CFO when when Tesla started. So, yeah, I think it's definitely going to be an interesting one to watch in the future. And the fact that they are um, sort of in that run race with with Amazon as well, be interesting to see how that plays out. Health apps are a headache and how to fix them. All this cooing and ahhing about health apps, but when it comes down to clinical safety, Dr. Tom Micklewright explains how they are an absolute nightmare. Indy, you've read this story and you've got some insight on regulatory things. Would you like to share them with your listeners? Yes, of course. And it's it's an interesting one, especially in the rise that we're having with digital health at the moment and the apps that we are seeing left, right and centre in the clinical space. And it's it's 
difficult because when health apps come to market, intended scope and use is is difficult. How do you monitor who is using the apps in what context? You're met with so many different variables that for clinical safety assessment, it can be an absolute nightmare. Not to mention health updates. I mean, we're seeing updates with most health apps around one to four every single month. And if you are validating the clinical assessment of those apps, it's it's almost impossible to keep up with that regularity. And especially not if you're working with a library of health apps within your organisation. If we're looking at something like AI, most health apps these days, AI is a buzzword that's thrown around a lot. And they mean that health apps are constantly iterating. The health app that you're using tomorrow won't be the same as it is today. It's constantly collecting and analysing a large data set. And how are you going to validate this safety assessment of an app that might be difficult, different tomorrow or in the future? So that's definitely something to consider. And this is an interesting one that I read about. So different places and different features. The author of this article was um, explaining that he was validating a popular health app um, and he came across an unusual problem with an entire new feature set hidden within the code of an app that was only available for US users. So how can you validate a clinical app if you're not given access to the whole feature? Is that a case that if, if... the author was able to to reach those features does that mean that some some other users can quite possibly and if they've not been validated anyway then how can we assess the clinical safety of them so i think some of the things to consider for how you move forwards with sort of validating the safety of these features is looking at a more aggregated incident reporting when you have medicines pharmaceutical medicines There's such a rigorous process of reporting of adverse incidents. I mean, I know when I worked at Pfizer, they had a whole department just dedicated to sort of the little slips that you have in medicine to, to monitor all of the side effects. But with apps, pretty much you're just looking at Um, the occasional incident reporting. But most of the time, it's recorded that users are just going to negatively rate that app on on the app store, which, of course, if that's had an adverse effect in any way, that's not good. It's not going to change anything about how the app is is reviewed and renewed for the future. So, yeah, it's, it's, it's an interesting issue to think about and it definitely requires a differentiated approach approach to clinical safety and with the rise of things like DTAC which is the NHS's own minimum standards of data um, and health safety regulations I think in the future we will definitely be looking at much more rigorous sort of data policies and clinical validation for these apps. Fantastic. Really interesting as well what you mentioned about kind of US versus UK, because if we think Mm. of medical devices and the fact that there are such strict protocol that they have to go through, you know, you've got FDA requirements, you've got nice guidelines, all all these other regulatory pathways for medical devices. But when that medical device is an app and there aren't separate versions across the world, it's a really interesting problem because there should be should be separate pathways and potentially does that mean separate apps or does that mean really high security to stop people being able to access that information 
if they were to sort of hack into the back end or whatever that might be? Yeah, no, it's just it's in the pharmaceutical market, you have a lot of differentiation between sort of low risk over the counter medications and high risk prescription only. And while some health apps may be looking at the more preventative medicine side, and some may be in the realms of diagnostic, there's definitely a clear differentiation between low risk and high risk health apps. But at the moment, they're being monitored and validated in exactly the same way, which could potentially be dangerous. So Redesign Health bags $65 million to incubate more tech-enabled healthcare businesses. The NYC-based incubator has built and launched an impressive 40 healthcare startups in 2018. We thought we worked fast. Most pigeon eggs hatch around 18 (laughs) days after incubation. Well, we learn something new every week on Health Tech Pigeon. (laughs) I love that. (laughs) All right. So yeah, Redesign Health are a healthcare startup that have just announced $65 million in funding to help build more tech-enabled businesses. This brings their post-money valuation to $1.7 billion, which sounds impressive. Um, I don't know much about valuation of startups, if I'm honest, but that sounds like quite a big That's number. That's pretty high. Yeah, I'd say so. Um, yeah, so currently about 90% of startups fail. We know that. We've worked with companies that have been successful and those that haven't. And Many of them fail for the same reasons. It might be lack of market or product fit. It might be problems within the team. It might be problems with marketing. All these kind of common things that people might not consider when they're first building a startup. They're drawn in on the big idea and maybe how they're going to change the world um, and don't necessarily think through, well, actually, what tools and technologies do I need? Also, this comes back to regulatory as well. That's often a hurdle I think that some startups fail on. They don't necessarily consider the regulatory hurdles that they have to go through um, to bring their product to market. So Redesign say that their, their company's model is unique. Instead of investing directly into startups, they assemble founding teams to address specific healthcare problems. So they're more like an incubator, I guess, in that sense, except they are actually bringing those teams together as well. And once they bring together those teams, um, they then arm them with the tools and technologies for success. And this might be support with product. It might be user research. It might be help with creating go-to-market strategies. All these sort of extra bits that are crucial to a product and a team's success. They work across healthcare, technology and business. And then in addition to kind of supporting the incubation of those teams, they also navigate the way to the right payers. So they ensure that hospital systems, healthcare providers, all these potential relationships um, that startups need to build and our potential failure points, they work with those startups to um, help that be, um, well, help that not be a failure point, help that be something that um, they actually have eyes and ears on from the beginning so that they can address those problems. So yeah, as Pigeon said at the beginning, they've built and launched 40 healthcare startups since their inception. That's across cancer care, teleaudiology, senior care, COVID testing, metabolic health. And through all these startups, they reckon they've touched the lives of more than 10 million people, which is pretty fantastic. So um, yeah, I think it's quite an exciting thing to see what they do next. Yeah, this is actually um, the first time they've heard about Redesign Health, but um, I really like their description of themselves as a healthcare startup creator that builds tech-enabled healthcare businesses. Um, and 
Yeah, I mean, to me, it really feels like what they're doing is just putting together the different parts of a jigsaw puzzle um, that make very successful companies. Um, and it seems like they figured out what all of those jigsaw pieces need to be and they have become very expert at putting them together. So, yeah, I think they've really figured out a formula that works here and it's good to see that it is mm. working for them and they have built these, like, 40 very successful companies and helping those 10 million people. Yeah, it's a great business model. What I love as well as is their approach to their strategy. I mean, focusing on finding and building a team first, then finding the problem and then building out and iterating from there is definitely an interesting way to build a health tech company. And not often, you know, typically founders look for that problem and, and start with the problem first. But, you know, we know that sort of 95 percent of VCs think that the founding team is is the one of the most important considerations for investment. And I think that clearly shows here by building a team first and, and the success that they've had. Yeah, great teams make make great companies. And this is clearly the model that redesign believe in. Yeah, 100%. Fantastic. All right. So on to healthcare story number four. Digital health trends coming in 2023. Love them or hate them, it's been a while since we shared a listicle. <laughs> I'm a simple bird, although I don't like saying that personally. But what are your predictions for 2023? Jess, you are the PR guru here. You must have seen a fair few listicles in your time. What are your thoughts? Um, yeah, listicle, very much <laughs> the bread and butter of PR. <laughs> um, but yeah, so just like Christmas comes early and earlier every year, it now seems that um, <laughs> listicle season is well and truly upon us. Um, and yes, it is still September, but um, Erica Tabarski in Forbes um, has looked into her crystal ball and has told us um, <laughs> what we're going to expect from the world of health tech in 2023. Um, so yeah, her predictions are US have a US focus because she's based in the US, I think in Atlanta. Um, but definitely her predictions are very relevant and interesting to a global audience and to a UK audience. And for me, like this crystal ball's not thrown up any huge surprises. Um, I think if any of us were asked to make a list about predictions for 2023, we probably would have come up with some similar suggestions here. But Erica thinks that there's going to be a big rise in approval of diagnostic products and platforms. And the market here will change, will grow because of changes to the regulatory system over in the US, making the products more accessible. Yeah, so Erica's actually the CEO and co-founder of a diagnostic startup and they do who do anemia screening. So I think if anyone's going to make predictions about this regulatory landscape that are going to be accurate, it's probably going to be going to be her. Um, so no surprise that this has come first on her list of predictions. She also thinks that more insurance companies will start covering virtual services and telemedicine. And I completely agree. This is inevitable. Yeah. Um, yeah. Such massive growth in this area of health tech that, of course, the insurance companies are going to have to expand their scope to include Absolutely. them. Um, and then she's also predicting there's going to be a greater focus on preventative medicine. Um, and I think that's something which is the shift there has been happening for years now. This is not something which is going to be a brand new thing yeah. for 2023. Um, but this is like more wellness platforms, um, lifestyle interventions, and also wearable tech that can um, help doctors look at patient data to implement early interventions. So all about stopping people getting sick rather than treating them when they get sick, which of course is a cost-effective, way more sustainable way of delivering healthcare. Um, and then the final um, 
nuggets of prediction which she shared with us um, is she thinks that technological developments from unexpected industries um, will empower digital health companies to be more sophisticated. Ooh. Yeah, so um, I'm a big advocate for cross-sector collaboration. So um, I'm excited for this. So she thinks that um, insights from gaming um, could be used um, in the digital health space. So I'm excited to see exactly what insights from gaming are going to be used. Yeah, I think definitely, definitely want to watch that. I can't wait to see how um, different different sectors are going to be like wading in into the world of digital health and helping make digital health products better. And I wonder how long it will be until blockchain comes over from sort of fintech into that sort of data safety element. I mean, it's been spoken about a, month, a lot. I think it's only sort of a matter of time. Yeah, well, watch out for 2024's listicles. <laughs> Amazing. Getting on it early. Yeah. I mean, yeah, probably about February 2023 that the 2024 <laughs> listicles start coming out. Yeah. I think the third point there is really interesting as well about like preventative medicine, because you're right, we're seeing that shift already, but it feels more vital than ever when we look at waiting lists and workforce shortages and things like we can't afford we, we can't afford to treat people we don't necessarily have the healthcare capacity to deal with them at the moment so everything we can do to prevent people being there in the first place is going to be really really vital yeah i mean over over here in the uk um mm. we're just constantly hearing how stretched the nhs are exactly. like how busy doctors are everyone's under pressure waiting times are spiraling and the solution to that is not is not just to expand the capacity of the hospitals um it's just to try and think of ways of getting people to be treated mm. in the communities and not having to go to the hospital in the first place due to better yeah. preventative healthcare. yeah absolutely definitely and i know um there's also the idea of like preparation as well, like preparing people before they go into hospitals so that they have, you know, lower hospital stay times and they can be discharged earlier. And that sort of thing as well is also really important. So preventing and also kind of enhancing that experience so that patients, when they do have to go to hospital, can be there for the most minimal amount of time possible. Yeah, this is something that um, Sapien are mm. um, doing a lot of work so this like did the idea of the digital clinic um preparing yeah. hospital um, preparing patients in their homes um to be fitter for surgery um so like lifestyle interventions like diet changes yeah. taking advice on exercise um mental well-being coaching so that these patients can have good outcomes be in hospital for as short a time as possible yeah it's the sort of thing that you don't really think about if you if you're not someone that's familiar with healthcare maybe and maybe someone that doesn't get ill very often mm. like if you are taken in for surgery or something you probably don't think that your physical health is well i mean obviously if you say it it makes sense like your physical health is going to make a difference to how long you stay but actually thinking of eating well and doing more exercise you're like how is that going to make a difference when someone cuts into me and does x or y yeah and I think I think this is that point that you've just touched on is one of the most important. It's that educational piece, because I think at the moment, lots of the general public aren't aware that a lot of their health outcomes are completely controlled, sort of, and in their own hands um, to have ownership over. And it's very much about empowering people to understand that, you know, they can make a difference in their own lives. And it's, you know, just taking small sustainable steps together. And, and it doesn't need to be something daunting or, or intimidating. But I think that will definitely help shift um, sort of the scope from, from reactive to preventative medicine. Amazing. All right. So let us move on to story number five. 
Dot Plot wins the UK Dyson Award, a device that helps women self-check their breasts more confidently and track changes at home. So I feel like our all-women panel today is great to discuss this topic. So yeah, breast cancer is the second most common cause of cancer death in the UK. It counts for 11,500 deaths every year. And the earlier cancerous tissue is detected, the better. Stage one breast cancer has a 95% survival rate, but as, as cancer goes out to stage four, this drops to only 25%. So we should be checking our boobs regularly so that we can catch these changes as early as possible in order to get the best possible outcomes. Now, we all know we should be checking our boobs regularly. I'm sure I'm sure you guys get haunted by Instagram adverts telling you to check <laughs> them as well. Um, but how many of us actually do? Well, according to Cancer Research UK and Copperfield, they did a study and it said that of women aged 18 to 35, 64% fail to regularly check their breasts. Um, and I would definitely fall into that category. Like, it it just feels a bit weird sometimes. It might be cold, it you does. might just feel a bit odd. <laughs> or, yeah, it's it also, might... what are you looking for? Exactly. You know, I check my breasts, I don't know what I need to be, you know, feeling for. Exactly. You might not know what normal is. Like, breasts are lumpy tissue. That is what they are. So, like, what is a normal really lump? Really selling it, Val. Really and what's an abnormal it. lump? But, I mean, it's true. <laughs> it's hard. So anyway, this device has just won the James Dyson Award to help with this. Um, so it works similarly to a mammogram, which in the UK is offered to over 50s um, and they get annual checkups to look for breast changes um, or ultrasound, which if you've ever gone to a doctor's or hospital because you're worried about a lump, that's what you'll be offered. Um, it's a handheld device which uses sound waves to record tissue composition um, and users are encouraged to use it once a month to build up a sort of personalised map of your boobs and your torso. So when you check your boobs, you should be kind of going right up and into your armpits and that whole surrounding region as well. Um, and by building up this sort of personalised baseline of your breast health, any suspicious changes or abnormalities can be flagged as early as possible and the individual can then go to a medical professional for further advice. Now, I mean, this sounds pretty transformative. The device is in the early stages of development, it hasn't gone through regulatory testing yet, and it obviously isn't a substitute for a doctor. But hopefully things like this, where people can, in the comfort of their own home, just use a device that lets them kind of know straight away if everything's feeling good. Because I know the second you feel something, you immediately go from zero to 100. You're like, oh my God, I've got breast cancer, I'm going to die. And it's it's a stressful thing. Um, so something like this will not only give people the confidence to ch check their breasts more regularly, um, but also that might encourage them to look for other changes as well. Like that could be nipple puckering, discharge, obviously lumps also. Um, but also encourage them that when something does feel wrong, that actually we've caught it at the early stages. So it might make people less likely to feel really stressed about that because at the early stages, breast cancer is, as we said at the beginning, 95% survival rate, incredibly, incredibly high. So both of you, would a tool like this make you more regularly check your boobs? I think absolutely, yeah. Anything that can um, take away those kind of niggling worries which you sometimes get in the back of your mind without having to go through the sometimes like intimidating process of making a GP appointment. Um, I think this is uh, really something to be celebrated. Absolutely. And I think, again, it's coming back to that taking preventative and proactive steps as well. I mean, if this was something that I had in the comfort of my own home that I know that I can safely and regularly just do little updates that I know that I'm staying on top of it. Yeah. And so like you say, Jess, actually, it's a really good point. Like going to a GP is intimidating. Like you immediately 
you immediately start to sort of freak out about kind of what's the worst case. And there's also, and I, I mentioned this last week as well, there's also a huge amount of like advocacy that you feel that you need to have when you go to a GP because you're just like, well, I think I've got the worst case scenario, so I need to advocate for that. And a GP's there, obviously, to give you their professional advice and, and let you know when that isn't the case. Um, I mean, I've had an experience where I thought I had a lump in my armpit and I kept looking at it and kept looking at it. And I, I went to the doctors and it turns out that it was it was just like my armpit muscle. But I've been straining my arm in such a weird way to look <laughs> at this lump that I've been like working out my armpit muscle. Yeah, <laughs> wow. Just, that that takes takes new games to a whole new level so yeah something like this that can just like you know that wouldn't have happened because at the first stage absolutely at the first stage those worries would have been kind of set aside which I think I think is pretty amazing and I love the tie up here as well to that personalized app that you can build up an entire profile just dedicated Mm. to you so you've got that history there if you know if you should need it in the future to look back on yeah and I think we're seeing that across across healthcare in general, like people are taking control of their own health. They're wanting to track their steps, their sleep, all these other markers. We work with a client called Mindspan that builds up a baseline model of your brain health. Again, so you can see any changes as they crop up um, and then deal with that accordingly. But I think it's something that people are more interested in, this sort of self-management of health and also just being a bit of a data nerd. People people love to mm-hmm. sort of see those numbers. They like to see things looking flat or peaking or all that good stuff. Absolutely. So this probably ties into your 2023 things as well, Jess. Like, you know, we're going to see much, much more kind of app-based things as people sort of self-manage their own health as well. Yeah, yeah. Expect 2023 to be the year of the app. Yeah, 100%. All right. So we are nearing the end of our podcast. So on to the last story. Creating a digital Hippocratic Oath for the 21st century. Doctors have been taking the Hippocratic Oath, a set of ethical rules that govern medical practice for centuries. However, does this reflect the way that medicine is practiced in the 21st century? Is the great Hippocrates any match for Dr. Google? Indy, what are your thoughts here? Yeah, thank you, Val. And no, I absolutely loved reading this story. It's such an interesting thought, um, especially for those medic listeners out there. I'll be really interested to hear what you guys think as well, because... You know, physicians have been taking the Hippocratic Oath for centuries and it's been set to guide physicians throughout their profession and set the sort of the true North principles that govern and practice medicine. But we know that health tech and and the way that healthcare is delivered is changing so much. I mean, we have the introduction of AI and apps and remote health and telemedicine. And so should that be something that we are seeing interwoven within the Hippocratic Oath? Um, I think as well, it's interesting, it comes down to sort of how many people within the healthcare profession regard the Hippocratic Oath as as imperative and important um, in today's practice. I mean, when you look at patients and um, healthcare professionals up to the ages of 34 that were asked, only 39% sort of said that they found it relevant to today's medicine. Um, when you look at 60 people that were 65 and over, that jumps up to 70. So it's definitely the older generations that are probably used to um, having said these oaths and, and studied it back in, in their days at medicine. Um, but what I loved is the little phrases that are being put forward um, and recommended for change that sort of incorporate 
things such as data coding and and algorithms, for example, you know, should we reflect the intrinsic use of digital technology in practice? Sort of one of the quotes at the moment is, I will simply remember that there is an art to medicine as well as a science and that warmth, sympathy and understanding may outweigh the surgeon's knife, the chemist's drugs or the program's programmer's algorithm, which is I love oh, that. Lovely. I love that. Um, and here again, we have an acknowledgement to both sick care and preventative health care. So at the moment, the Hippocratic Oath focuses on treating the sick, but is silent on the role of preventative medicine for the well. And we know that, as we've discussed today, modern medicine emphasises a lot the importance of those preventative care across both physical, mental and sort of social realms of health. Mm. And again, is that something that should be reflected? What are your thoughts? Do you think the Hippocratic Oath is still important? Do we need to change it? So, yes, yeah, so much about the Hippocratic Oath. It's such a um, big tradition in medicine. Um, and yes, there are traditionalists who think that we should keep it the same. And it's always been like this. Um, but no, I'm, I'm completely backing, evolving, updating with the times. I think just because we've always done something one way, it doesn't mean we should keep doing it that way. Um, and let's let's have a new Hippocratic Oath to um, recognise the very new healthcare landscape in which we're now all existing. Mm, yeah, totally agree. Like when that, when it was, I mean, when was the Hippocratic Oath written? When was, when did it first start coming? Great question. I know it's centuries ago. I mean, the last iteration was made by the World Medical Association back in 1948. So, and it was, the Hippocratic Mm. Oath was developed prior to that. So it's been around for a long time. I agree. I think it needs an update. Yeah, I think we we can't continue to rely on these things because everything moves on, but specifically mm. healthcare and health tech. Like, just look at the last 10 or 20, like the 40s is a Absolutely. lifetime ago in, in health tech. The way people are treated is just unrecognisable, really. Um, and it's interesting when you see these few elements of healthcare and health tech that seem quite stuck yeah. in the past and they, sh- they should be modernised as well. We see it across other, other aspects of of this GPs and hospitals. I know that there's there's the ongoing joke that the NHS runs on fax <laughs> machines. Um, also last year, probably, when the... Uh, yeah. was I mean, I mean, listen to this. But, so we need to address the data privacy. And there's a suggestion that this should be made. So the quote is, I, I will respect the privacy of my patients and their data for their problems are not disclosed to me that the, in the way that the world may know. And I love that, the patients and their data, yeah. because of course, big data is, you know, yeah. it's necessary and, it, and that's where health tech is moving forwards. Well, everything, everything is data these days. Like someone comes in and, you know, they've got a tracked a track history of, of their life and their health through data. And that might be the number of steps they've taken, but it's also times they've been to the GP, times they've been to the hospital, that's all logged, it's all data points, and it all builds up a really full picture of what a human is and helps people deliver better care, ultimately. So can we do something which reflects that? Um, I think the answer is we absolutely must. Absolutely. All right, so that sums up today's episode. Thank you for listening, everybody. That was the week's news in health tech. We were joined by Jess and Indy and discussed Google's secret research group, some predictions for 2023's health tech trends, and hopefully everyone will be encouraged to go Mm -hmm. check their boobs next time they have a shower. If you like the episode, subscribe in your podcast player of choice. 
you want to grab any of the links to these stories or you want to get the newsletter every week, head on over to www.healthtechpigeon.com. And if you want to reach us, we're all on LinkedIn and we'll link ourselves in the podcast description of this episode. Thanks all for joining and we'll see you next week. Thank you. Bye. Bye.